Y'all know what hokey means? All right, just checking. All right. Good. Because God does, and that's who we were praying to. Okay, so uh, we're back in Jonah. Those of you that are joining us, you're like, what is going on at this church? Here's what's going on at this church. We are moving back. We are doing two books at the same time. We are preaching through Peter, 1 Peter, and Jonah. Uh, and one, you're going to get great clarity in doctrine, 1 Peter. And the other, you're going to get the drama of doctrine, Jonah. Today we're back in Jonah, and here's the question for us in Jonah. You want to know what the big idea of Jonah is. You want to know what's the sticky statement. What is the theme of this passage we're looking at? Here it is. It's in a question. It's in a suspenseful question. It's what kind of people does God use? What kind of person do you need to be to be used by God? What kind of people have the greatest impact for the kingdom of God in this life? What kind of people make a difference? What kind of people matter? What kind of people change the world? Some of you are thinking, Jeff, I really don't care. I didn't get up this morning and think, I want to be used by God today. I get up and I think, I'm going to be late for class. Or I need more money. Or I need a wife. Or I should impress at least the one follower I have on Twitter. I'm losing my mommy mind. I've got to figure out my life. Am I enough? Those are the thoughts that run through your mind. And I get that. That's absolutely fair. If I'm honest, I had that morning too. So, here's another way of thinking about it. And maybe you can relate to this one. Maybe this one connects to you. You do, though, at times think about what kind of person is successful. What kind of person is not a loser? What kind of person makes a difference, has an impact, like... Your life echoes beyond this one. Maybe you can connect with that. What kind of people does God use? Well, in the strictly personal section in New York Magazine, a woman wants to meet a man, and she places this ad to meet the man. Strikingly beautiful, Ivy League graduate, playful, passionate, perceptive, elegant, bright, articulate, original in mind, unique in spirit. I possess a rare balance of beauty and depth, sophistication and earthiness, seriousness and a love of fun, professionally successful, per perfectly capable of being self-sufficient and independent, but I won't be truly content until we find each other. Please reply with a substantial letter describing your background and who you are, photo essential. What kind of people does God use? What kind of person do you need to be to be used by God? To have an impact for the kingdom of God. In 1685, Louis IV of France revokes the Edict of Nantes. Louis's grandfather, Henry IV, decreed the Edict of Nantes. What's the Edict of Nantes? It protects Protestant Christians in a largely Catholic country. It protects their civil rights. It was meant to grant 
unity among the people. But Louis IV revokes the Edict of Nantes, and Protestant worship is now subversive. Protestant worship is now a crime. Protestant worship is now treasonous to the state. If you're caught, you're sent to the galleys. You know what the galleys are? These are ships that have oars. You know, it's kind of like the Peloton, but it's a rowing machine. You're chained to the rowing bench for the rest of your life until you die, never to see your family again. And when you die, you're just unceremoniously dumped overboard and someone else takes your seat. What a waste. In southern France, there's a museum, the Museum of the Desert. There's a replica of a galley ship there. On the galley ship, there's this huge oar. And in it are inscribed the words of a Huguenot. That's what these Protestant Calvinists were called, Huguenots. Uh, this person's words, here they are. My chains are the chains of Christ's love. What kind of people does God use? What kind of person do you need to be to be used by God to be impactful for the kingdom of God, to make a difference, <laughs> to change the world? He's called the Prince of Preachers. His name is Charles Spurgeon. He pastored a church of over 4,000 people in an age when megachurches were not even known. No one knew about mega. This is like an anomaly, and it was in London. He preached 10 times a week. So this week, if you just go by hours, I preached four or taught four. So this is preaching and teaching. I'd love to preach, teach 10 times a week. Once he preached to a group of 23,654 people without a microphone, just the human voice. It is probably still one of the largest groups to be spoken to and heard without a microphone. He starts an orphanage. He starts homes to care for widows and the elderly. They're called almshouses. He starts a school for poor children. He starts a college to train pastors. And then there's his writing. There's his journals. There's his articles. There's his letters. There's his books. One biographer said that on average week, he received 500 letters in need of a response. Spurgeon himself says of his ministry, Spurgeon himself says of being used by God, Spurgeon himself says in being useful in the kingdom of God, this is what he says, no one living knows, no one living knows the toil and care I have to bear. I feel as though I have created a great machine and it's ever grinding, 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 and I may be yet its next victim. Before preaching one Sunday, he tells his congregation, the furnace still glows around me. Since I last preached to you, I have been brought very low. My flesh has been tortured with pain. He suffered from gout. And my spirit has been prostrate with depression. Let's preach. What kind of people does God use? What kind of people? Does God use? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. So I'm going to just tell you the structure real quick because it will help you understand what's going on. In verse 17 right here, you're getting the global view of the text. This is a 30,000-foot view. 
You could call it the big idea. In verses two, in chapter two, one through four, you're getting God's interpretation of what's happening. Something's going to happen, but we need to know what it means. And so the first four verses are going to give you what God says it means, what the Bible says it means. Then in verses five, six, and seven, you're going to get what's happening. You're going to get the historical event. This is the event. The first four verses are going to tell you what it means because you need to know this because in 7 and 8, Jonah's going to tell you what he thinks it means. And those are always interesting times. And then the conclusion is at verse 10. So you ready? And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Here comes the theology, the interpretation. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and all your waves and all your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now some see that as a question, rhetorical. Some see it as a statement. You could read it like this. Shall I yet again look upon your holy temple? Here comes the movie. Here's the event. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed forever upon me. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit. O oh Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Here's Jonah's take. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will repay. This is the only thing he gets right. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And of course, right when he says that, spit him out. <laughs> the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, this is a dramatic text, and we're asking that the drama of the doctrine, you would speak into our minds and speak into our hearts, that we would actually sink into the deep waters of this text. Fill us with your spirit. May it be a demonstration of your spirit and power. In Jesus' name, amen. What kind of people does God use? Everyone knows Jonah is a prophet. We might as well say Jonah is a pastor. We might as well say Jonah is a church leader, a committed Christian. Jonah is someone used by God. Everybody knows that. Jonah, everyone knows, is spiritually successful. He's a, he's a celebrity pastor because just a couple years before this, he leads a massive national revival. Like God uses him to bless the nation in an unparalleled way since the glory days of David. The army and the military is mobilized into a world power. The economic success is booming. The real estate business, land acquisition, land grabs, land expansion is all the way back to the land and even more into international boundaries since the time of David. Everyone knows Jonah is someone used by God. Everyone knows Jonah is spiritually famous. I mean, he was mentored by Elijah. Can you get a bigger, better mentor than that? Only maybe Spurgeon. 
He's also the legendary boy that grew up under Ahab, King Ahab, which is interesting. <laughs> you know, Moby Dick, the whale. He grew up in the Great Depression. He's starving to death. But there's this weird dude that lives above in the, you know, I don't know, the single room at the top of his house. His mom lets stay there. He dies. She freaks out. The weird dude raises him from the dead. Who is it? Elijah. Everyone knows Jonah is someone used by God, period. Just so I'm clear, everyone knows Jonah is someone used by God. And simultaneously, at the same time, someone who's running away from God. Both are true. And some of you are thinking, because I know it, I know it, that can't be true. God does not use people who run away from him. That is absolutely not true. So, if this is you, you need to know you're in good company because Bible scholars, Christians, and churches throughout the centuries have wrestled with this text and find this hard to believe. The tension of someone being used by God and someone running away from God is absolutely so tight and so tense in this passage that Bible scholars try to resolve it by explaining it away. And you got two groups of Bible scholars. You're going to get one group that's going to say this. Jonah's being used by God. One side, Jonah's being used by God. Look, he prays. This is the first time he prays in the whole book. He prays. He calls upon God. Oh, God, deliver me. And here's the great thing. God delivers him. No more tension, this group says. Jonah has stopped sinning. He stopped running. Then there's the other side of Bible scholars that say Jonah is still running away from God. Look, he's so self-absorbed. Ten times he says I in this passage. Seven times he says my. I mean, he's so self-focused. And not only that, you say he's not running away from God, but he never confesses that he runs away from God. There's no confession in this thing. There's no admission. Yeah, I was running away from you, God. I'm sorry. And not only that, look at verse 8. He thinks he's not like those idolaters, those sailors, those Ninevites. Some say this is the passage that Jesus uses in Matthew or in the, in the Gospels when he tells the story about the Pharisee that says, thank God I'm not like that dude. Some say Jonah is doing the exact same thing. He thinks he's delivered in verses 8 and 9. Remember, that's his interpretation because of his piety, because he's such a great Christian. Because he didn't mess around with idols, verse 8. Because he didn't forsake steadfast love, verse 8. Because he gives thanks, verse 9. Because he offers sacrifices, verse 9. Because he fulfills his commitments. He's strong. He's dedicated. <laughs> no more tension. Jonah is still running, one group says. But then what, if the Bible scholars do that, they try to explain it away, take one side or the other. What do, what do churches do? What do Christians do? What do you know, pastors do? Well, we're great. What we do is we theologize the tension away, right? We spiritualize the tension away. We find some system that can fit what we think is happening here. So one tradition says 
This is when Jonah becomes a Christian. This is his true conversion. His mom's faith needed to become his own. This is when it becomes his own. And some say, well, what about his prophetic call? Well, that's just it. It was a prophetic call. It wasn't his conversion. This is his conversion. And still others said, well, he led a national revival. Yeah, he led a national revival, but this is his conversion. Another tradition says this is when Jonah makes Jesus Lord. This is when he finally surrenders all. This is when he finally rededicates his life to God. This is when he finally gets committed. Finally. Still others say this is when Jonah became spiritually victorious. He went from a carnal Christian, God's B team, to a spiritual Christian, God's A team. He finally learned how to tap into the power of the Holy Spirit in his life and activate the Holy Spirit more in his life. He finally employed some spiritual disciplines that impacted his life, his vows, his thanks. Throughout this whole text, he's reciting prayers from the Psalms. He applies, finally, the right biblical principles to his life. He finally went to the right church. He finally follows the right special anointed person. And then in our tradition, we just say, oh, this is when he became a Calvinist. <laughs> uh, one Jonah scholar, Kevin Youngblood, says, the tension in Jonah is so tight. The tension between Jonah is someone God uses and Jonah is someone running away from God. The tension is so tight, he says, that even the fish had enough. Listen to what he says. Quote, the vomiting suggests that the fish had had enough of Jonah's tensions in his belly. Blah. What kind of people does God use? What kind of person do you have to be to be used by God? To make an impact for the kingdom of God. The answer from Jonah People who run away from God. No one sees that one coming. Is this you? Do you run away from God? If so, you're someone God uses. God's love is not based on nor driven by your spiritual strength. You don't connect with God based on or driven by your spiritual strength. God using you is not based on nor driven by your spiritual strength. God is saying to you right now, I love weak people. I use weak people. God loves weak Jonah. And God loves the weak sailors. And God loves a whole weak city called Nineveh. And then God uses Jonah's weakness, don't miss this, to reach Jonah. And he uses Jonah's weakness to reach the sailors and to reach a whole city. God uses weakness. Just, just ask the cross. 
What kind of people does God use? Answer number one, people who run away from God. Yikes. Well, let's get a little more specific. What is it exactly about God that Jonah's running away with, right? So, you know, running away from God's pretty generic. It's pretty safe. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, great. It's not very textually specific. It doesn't reach in and kind of grab your imagination or like prick your heart and make you feel conviction or make you feel something that you should. So what is it? Well, Jonah tells us himself. That's what's incredible. Jonah tells us specifically why he's running away from God. Now get this. He tells it. It's going to happen in chapter 4. He's watching the whole city of Nineveh. He's sitting there on a hill chewing, you know, what, a piece of grass, waiting for God to have fire come down and judge Nineveh. And all of a sudden, all these people, to his shock, are calling upon God's grace. He can't believe it. And this is what he says. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Oh, here it comes. This is why he ran. For I knew. For I knew you're a gracious God. I knew it. What exactly about God is Jonah running away from? Well, it's not God's holiness. He's not running after the storm that God sends on sin. He's not running away from that, okay? It's not stupid churches, annoying Christians. That Sunday school teacher you had. It's not his parents. It's not his strict home. It's not obedience. He's not running away from sexual purity. He's running away from God's grace. He's running away from God's grace. He's running away from God's grace. Don't miss this. Jonah can define grace for you, but it's not real in his life. Jonah's been catechized, but he doesn't feel it deeply. Another way of saying it is this. Jonah actually believes in God's grace at one level, and yet does not believe in God's grace at far deeper levels in his life. And that means that in every Christian, in every prophet, in everyone who attends a church, you have unevangelized areas of your life that need the grace of God. You are an unreached people group. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's how you deal and handle work. Maybe it's how you wrestle with success or failure. This is incredible. This is incredible. This is incredible because God is saying to all of us, anyone who reads the book of Jonah, he's saying, your deepest problem in life is running away from my grace. What's the deepest problem in your relationship with God? What's the deepest problem? You're running away from God's grace. 
What's the deepest problem in your marriage? You're running away from God's grace. What's the deepest problem with your anger? You're running away from God's grace. What's the deepest problem in your anxiety? You're running away from God's grace. What's the deepest problem with how you handle money? You're running away from God's grace. What kind of people does God use? People who run away from God's grace. And, and, simultaneously, at the same time, both people who sink deeper into the waters of God's grace. There it is. People who run and people who sink all at the same time, simultaneously, saint and sinner, simultaneously justified and sinful, theologians have said. I should say the good ones. The horrible ones know nothing of that tension. Verse 5, remember verse 5? What's verse 5 doing? It's telling you the actual historical event, remember? So we're going to look at verse 5 here. We're going to look at the event as it's happening. We're going to turn on the movie. Here it comes. Now, remember in verses 1 through 4 was God's interpretation of the event. And remember in verses 8 through 9, it was Jonah's interpretation of the event. So what's the event? What's the big idea? What's the historical thing happening? Jonah hits the water. Verse 5, the water's closed in over me to take my life. He hits the water. You're in the movie. Boom. The last words, though, you need to remember this. The last words, as Jonah is flying through the air, they're taking him, and he goes, one, two. He's in the air. He's flying through the air. Wind, water. You remember, like, in Coast Guard people, the people in Florida, they'll tell you that what's air, what's water, no one knows in storms like that. You breathe, you're breathing water. He's flying through the air. The last words he hears are the sailor's words. God, have mercy on us. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Splash. And then he sinks. And then he sinks. And then he sinks into the great deep. The belly of Sheol. The underworld, the land of the dead. Those of you that were here this past Wednesday on angels and demons know exactly what we're talking about. Notice the Bible's interpretation of what's happening to Jonah while he's descending. Verses 1 through 4, you cast me into the deep. God cast Jonah into the deep. All your waves and billows passed over me, verse 3. This is God's storm for sin. I am driven away from your sight, verse 4. Jonah runs away from God, right? Jonah's running away from God's sin. Sin carries a storm with it. At the same time, we can say God sends a storm at sin, God's justice. All this is happening right now. That's God's interpretation of what's happening as Jonah is sinking. So we could say it this way. Running away from God is the same thing as sinking into Sheol. 
Running away from God is the same thing as running into the land of the dead. In 1892, a Scottish doctor named James Lawson was thrown into the sea with about 150 other people off the coast of Sri Lanka. A typhoon sunk their ship, quote, in the dead of the night. So it doesn't get any worse than that. Uh, most of the 150 sailors sank with the ship. So did Mr. Lawson. The ship fell out from under him, went down, and it dragged him down, down, down into the deeps. The last thing he remembers is losing consciousness, but he was wearing a vest, a life vest, and the air in the life vest, the buoyancy in the life vest, while he's passed out, shot him to the surface. He survives. He is Robinson Crusoe on some island, and he lives to tell the tale. And he says this, It seemed as if I was in a vice that was gradually being screwed up tight until it felt as if the sternum and the spinal column must break. The gulping efforts became, became less frequent. Gulping, you know, you're, you're trying to get air, so you, you inflexibly gulp. The pressure was unbearable. I got this account from Sebastian Younger. He wrote this book called The Perfect Storm. Anybody read that? It was certainly a movie. But this account is incredible. He says this. He did all the research on people that drowned like this. He said, the instinct not to breathe underwater is so strong that it overcomes the agony of running out of air. No matter how desperate the drowning person is, he doesn't inhale until he's on the verge of losing consciousness. At that point, there's so much carbon dioxide in the blood and so little oxygen that chemical sensors in the brain trigger an involuntary breath. <gasps> and then your lungs fill. This is called the break point. Laboratory experiments have shown the break point comes after 87 seconds. Jonah is at the break point. When my life was fainting away, verse 7, I remembered the Lord. What are Jonah's last thoughts before he dies? What flashes through Jonah's mind? What flashes before his eyes before he dies? Not his strength, not his obedience not his faith, not his holiness, not his dedication, not his commitment, not his past experiences of being used by God, not his spiritual disciplines, his vows, his forsaking of sin, not even his sin, not even his anger, not even his guilt, not even his shame. The last thing that flashes before his eyes is the Lord. The God of good news. The God of grace. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. Most Bible experts are quick to point out that the book of Jonah intentionally casts, recasts Jonah as a Noah figure. He survives a great flood. He survives the primordial waters of the great chaotic deep, right? He's a survivor. 
Most Bible experts also point out that the literary structure of the Noah account, it's chiastic structure, it's just a way of structuring something. Um, it's theological structure. It's like uh, the whole Noah account moves like this to a point literarily and then kicks out from that point saying this is what it's all about. That point in the Noah account are these words. Then the Lord remembered Noah. The exact same point for the Jonah account are these words. Then Noah remembered the Lord. You are meant to see this. Jonah remembers God's grace because God never, ever, ever forgets him. Remember how I told you that verse 17 was the global view of, of Jonah? Like it gives you the, oh. You know, it's like you get into the muck and mire of a text. It's so hard to see. It's so hard to understand what exactly is going on. You go over to this tree and you hit your head and you're like, you want to hit that tree and you go over to this one, you get lost. You, oh, that's a pretty good fruit. And then you get poison ivy over here. You're lost. You're lost. You need someone to give you a map. You need someone to say, hey, man, let's get in a helicopter and let's fly above the text and go, oh, there it is. There's the way out. There's the route through the text. This is what you're trying to say. Verse 17 is that. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In the ancient world, in the biblical world, to be three days and three nights was to mark the required time you must spend to pay your debt in the underworld. It doesn't matter how you got there. You could have brought yourself there. Someone could have sent you there. Whatever reason you got there, when you're there, you're there three days and three nights. That's the debt paid to the land of the dead. That's the required cost for the land of the dead. Jesus says to you and me in Matthew 12, 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Oh, so he never really sank to Sheol. It felt like it. It was a Sheol-like experience, but it never actually happened. So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus did sink into the underworld. Jesus did sink to the place where the bars are shut forever. Jesus spent three days and three nights paying the debt of the land of the dead. He paid every debt for every area in your life that you need to be condemned. So God forgets Jesus, so he would never, ever forget you. God does not remember Jesus, so that he would never, ever forget you. Grace. Grace. The deep, deep waters of grace. 
So don't miss how the, the whole thing ends, right? Let's don't forget that. In 2.9, Jonah finally gets grace. Remember, he finally gets it. He's still a mixed bag, though, right? Oh, my vows. Oh, I did this. But salvation belongs to the Lord. Simultaneously, someone God uses. Simultaneously, he runs away from God. Simultaneously, he's a saint. Simultaneously, he's a sinner. Simultaneously, he's justified. Simultaneously, he's unlovely. But he gets grace at a whole new level in a different area of his life. He gets reached and he says, salvation, grace belongs to the Lord. At that very moment, the fish spits him out to go to Nineveh. It's time to go. Right? The fish spits him out. Here's the point. Every time you get grace, every time you grow in grace, Every time grace goes from one area of your life to another area of your life or deeper in another area of your life, you're spit out to Nineveh. You're now on mission. You're now a useful agent. You now are used by God. 